This doesn't have to be scary. It could, in fact, be one of the biggest opportunities in history to create new jobs, better communities, more healthy ways of living, and avoid planetary disaster. Our individual actions can be part of that, just like voting, just like where we spend our money. And we all have different roles we can play. If we try these things out at home and we talk about them and influence the world around us a bit more and keep our votes and our dollars aligned with those values and those actions, then we start to have a big impact. And that's going to be pretty interesting, pretty interesting, pretty interesting. That's Dr. Jonathan Foley, climate and environmental scientist and executive director of Project Drawdown. And this is episode 119 of The Proof Podcast. Hey, my friends. I hope you are doing well and enjoying your week. It's great to be back with you again. I really think you're going to enjoy today's episode, which is all about the theme of planetary health, an ongoing conversation on this show. Before I tell you about the guest, a very quick note for any new first-time listeners. Thanks for joining us. It's great to have you here. I hope this is the first of many times we get a chance to hang out together. By way of background, I'm Simon Hill, qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist and host of this show. My passion is understanding how we can make sense of science and use it to our advantage to make better decisions about our health and become more conscious about how our decisions affect the world around us. Before I give you a bit of a spiel, a bit of an introduction to today's guest, in case you have missed the announcement on social media or in previous episodes, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is out May 4th. To pre-order your copy, go to plantproof.com forward slash book. That's plantproof.com forward slash book. And you'll be able to select the best online retailer according to your location. I really cannot wait for you to read it. Today I sit down with Dr. Jonathan Foley. This is a really special episode, a great opportunity for you to hear from one of the most well-known climate and environmental scientists in the world. He's published over 130 peer-reviewed papers in highly prestigious journals such as Science and Nature. He's an advisor to governments and private businesses and is one of the key figures at Project Drawdown, a nonprofit organization that seeks to help the world reach Drawdown, the future point in time when levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere stop climbing and start to decline. Now, top line, one thing I don't want this show to become is an echo chamber. Jonathan is not plant-based himself, but despite a few things we may see slightly differently, with regards to our diet, I would say we are in agreement on around 95% of things. Rather than giving you my perspective now, I'll save that to the end of the conversation in the outro. That way you can hear Jonathan's perspective first without being influenced by me, which I think is a more respectful way of doing things. So without further ado, this is climate and environmental scientist, Dr. Jonathan Foley.
One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Hey Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hi nice, Simon, thanks for having me. It's great to, to finally have you with us. I think last time... We had a date, and from memory, you ended up getting COVID-19, so I hope that you fully recovered from that. That was not much fun. Um, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, but the good news is um, I had it for about two months, um, but I was able to get back to work about two or three weeks after, and um, but it took a while to fully recover, and um, but thankfully I have, and back to normal now. So Okay, well, I'm glad to hear that. I thought... Perhaps we we start this with you. It's the first time that you've been on this show. This is an, a, a, a hugely popular topic on this show in particular. You're an environmental scientist, and and I'd like to start with that. What what is an environmental scientist, and and what is it that you spend your days thinking about and doing? Yeah. Um, well, today yeah, I'm a climate and environmental scientist essentially. So I think about how our planet works and how we can best guide decision-making so that we don't make the planet worse for future generations. Um, my original training, though, was in uh, atmospheric science and oceanography, so I have an undergrad and PhD in those areas. 
And I spent about 15, 20 years actually in universities at the University of Wisconsin, the University of Minnesota as a professor and running fairly large research institutes that looked at big kind of global environmental issues like climate change, but also how they intersect with things like biodiversity and land use and agriculture and the food system and water systems and all of these things, because we we can't separate just climate change from everything else that's happening on the planet. They're all happening at once. Um, So that's kind of my science background. And then um, I I spent a few years actually running a science museum after that, which was really fun and uh, taught me a little bit more about how to communicate science more broadly, uh, which is also very important. And for about two years now, I've been the head of Project Drawdown, which is the world's leading kind of resource of science, but hopefully also communication tools to help people understand climate solutions. Uh, We all know about the climate problem, but when it comes to solutions, we're still kind of sorting out what works, what doesn't, um, how big this might be, how much it will cost, and how do we pull it off? So that's what we do, is try to help the world guide itself towards better climate solutions based on good science and uh, moving forward. It's quite unique to have someone like you who has the the sort of in-depth climate science background, but also... You know, I follow you on Twitter and I read your your blogs, and you are a fantastic communicator. You're you're great at taking this these highly complex bits of science and communicating them in a way that offers hope and gives people very practical information, and 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 also I think helps settle a bit of climate anxiety that no doubt exists today when you know a large part of this conversation is typically quite negative. I do have something that. I'd like to ask on the climate science side of things. What would you say to someone who still today believes that the the changing of the climate is not impacted by human activity? And is that something that you still come come across? I would just walk away. I mean, <laughs> you know, there are people who think the earth is flat, that aliens live among us, that COVID vaccines are filled with 5G chips to control. I mean, you can't control crazy people and what they believe. Um, And um, basically, that's a very small fringe now of the world. Even in the United States, where I live, uh, it's something like 93% of Americans now accept to some degree or another that climate change is real, that we're causing it, and that we should do something about it. 90-something percent. That's incredible. Um, Not to all the same degree how concerned they are and all this kind of thing. There might be a few question marks left. But basically, we've won that debate, as we should have, because this is science that we knew back in the 1850s. So this is not new science. I, I don't think it's worth having that debate any longer. The Is this real or not? It's like if you're falling out of a building, you're not arguing about gravity. You're looking for the parachute. You're looking for ways to stop. So I'd rather move on to the other conversations. So like, well, now what do we do about it? Interestingly, by the way, when you do that, you tend to engage people even better who kind of believe in climate change but are a little skeptical or or think they are because... A lot of people who think they're skeptical about climate change are only skeptical because of their political leanings, where they say, wait a minute, I don't really want big government coming in and telling me what kind of car I can buy or what I can eat and what my taxes should be. It's more of like a political statement than a scientific one. But when you jump over into solutions and you start talking about, hey, wait a minute, a lot of the things we need to do to fix climate change are things that are good for us. They create jobs. They improve health. They improve areas of inequity and injustice that have been around for years. They make us healthier and so on. Suddenly people kind of sit up and go, oh, hey, wait a minute. This is pretty cool. This isn't a bunch of tree huggers anymore. You're speaking my language now. Tell me how this makes my life better and all this and even harder. 
So that's, that's kind of where I focus on that stuff, not on the old debates of the 1980s of like, you know, is climate change happening? I'm like, I don't have time. Yeah. Out of, out of interest on, on that, what, what do you think is the single sort of the strongest evidence that you point to that just categorically shows that humans have impacted the climate? Is it the changes in, in CO2 in the atmosphere? Or like if you could choose one or two pieces of evidence, what would you point to? Well, I mean, I, I point to the fact that um, we, <laughs> in 1856, a, an American woman named Eunice Foote was the first scientist in the world to point out that increases in CO2 would warm the planet. We used to think that was Joseph Tyndall, a male uh, British scientist, but he actually published his work four years later. It was a woman who published this first, was the very first real climate scientist in this area. Uh, and this was in the 1850s, not the 1980s. This wasn't Al Gore or um, you know, um, David Attenborough or somebody like that discovering climate change. It was uh, 19th century physics of like, hey, these gases trap heat in the atmosphere and without which this planet wouldn't even be habitable. Now we're adding a little bit more gas to the planet than has ever been here before. So the planet's going to warm up. And guess what? It did by precisely the amount we predicted. So this is just kind of, you know, duh, physics. And I think when people realize, like, this isn't some fancy new um, complicated environmental science thing. This is literally, you know, science we understood in the year 1850. And, um, and it hasn't changed at all. It's about as solid as anything we know. And, um, and you can show people graphs till you know, the cows come home, but, you know, better off just kind of walking them through that and that there's not a single piece of evidence to contradict it, not one. You mentioned Drawdown just before, and I do have a copy of the comprehensive plan that was published by Penguin a few years ago. It's a fantastic book. If anyone doesn't have a copy, please go out and, and get one. Can you just give me a little bit more of an understanding, I guess, as to how Drawdown came about and what it is that is the central focus of Project Drawdown? Yeah, so Project Drawdown, and anybody can come visit it at drawdown.org if you want to. We are an organization that is meant to be a world's open, non-commercial, non-partisan, science-based resource to help people understand and then implement climate solutions, solutions to the issue of climate change. Back in 2017, the group, um, before I joined, by the way, I, I've only been here for two years, but back in 2017, um, the group had published a really beautiful book just simply called Drawdown that was published by Penguin. It's now in uh, many different languages, available in most countries in the world now. And it became a, actually an overnight kind of bestseller, strangely, for a climate book. Here in the U.S., it became a New York Times bestselling climate book. It's one of the bestselling climate books of the last decade. Since then, we've actually published this and a few other reports. This is called the Drawdown Review, which is, brings all the information up to the year 2020, uh, much more up to date. And this is free on our website, so you can just go to drawdown.org and download this for free. Uh, and it's in English, French, and Spanish now, uh, all free versions, plus a few other more up-to-date reports. And then later this year, we're probably going to be switching to more like a magazine-style format will be much more rapid updates with other kinds of information, just to keep things fresh and more frequently updated. But the unique thing that Drawdown did back in 2017 was really, for the first time, uh, assess a very wide suite of climate solutions from electricity to agriculture and food and forestry to buildings to transportation to materials and industry, all these different kinds of things. 
and uh, do that with a kind of apple-to-apple comparison where we use the same tools to assess solutions across the board. So we could really compare, like, how much would a forestry project do for climate versus a solar panel for climate? And we use the same units, the same kinds of tools and models to assess them all. So that was a unique contribution um, scientifically in terms of the research. Uh, a guy named Chad Frischman, who's probably been on the show, about, um, he led a research team of about 100 researchers around the world who spent um, a couple of years working on this together in different, in different waves. And then secondly, uh, it was written as kind of a coffee table book. It was written to be accessible and readable and, dare we say, a little bit inspiring um, to show that, hey, wow, we have a lot of solutions to climate change. And if we put them together, they're enough to actually address the problem in a pretty serious way. We just have to get them done. And uh, that was also unique. So I think those two kind of one-two contributions of one doing a really thorough and uh, consistent review of climate solutions um, from um, using the same measurements across the board was really unique. But then um, probably more importantly was also writing it for everybody, not just a technical audience, not just like um, an IPCC report or in a scientific journal behind a paywall, that kind of thing. It was uh, both thorough and readable and inspiring. That was basically a book project and it ran through about 2018 But then in 2018, I joined the organization and then we kind of rebooted the whole thing to now become more of an an ongoing nonprofit that would continue the mission of the original book um, to say, let's be an ongoing resource for climate solutions to continually review and dive deep into those issues and then communicate those results very broadly, uh, but also to engage um, new stakeholders like businesses, nonprofits, communities, investors, philanthropists, governments, uh, in deeper conversations around how to implement climate solutions. So we're kind of in the middle of that transition now. If if we were able to put everything into place that's in that's in drawdown, all of the solutions, or at least most of them, and, and implement them well, what would the future look like? like? How would that change the outlook? Yeah, what's really interesting is, uh, again, this is all in here, so you don't have to just believe me. These are, The numbers are in here. Uh, we show that about 80 or so climate solutions put together in two different scenarios, we have a scenario where we use 80 climate solutions kind of aggressively, and then a, another scenario where we use 80 solutions really aggressively, like we really, really step on the gas, so to speak. In both of those, we find that we can stop climate change. In the more aggressive scenario, we can stop climate change by the mid-2040s and reach the point of drawdown. Um, drawdown, by the way, doesn't refer to removing carbon from the atmosphere. It refers to bending the curve when CO2 levels stop going up and they start coming back down again. The point of inflection, the point where we bent the curve, that's the moment of drawdown where we're drawing down the pollution levels as a whole, not just by sucking them out, but by not putting them in there in the first place, which is even more important. Um, So the earliest we felt we could get to that point of drawdown where we stopped climate change would be the mid-2040s. And that would leave the planet about 1.5 degrees warmer than it um, otherwise would be. Right now, we're already about 1 to 1.1 degrees warmer. So that's, that meets the Paris commitment of about 1.5 degrees. The other scenario, which is still quite aggressive, but it gives us a little bit more time to scale these solutions up, stops climate change in the 2060s and leaves the world about 2 degrees warmer, which is the other Paris commitment, Paris looked at the world um, stopping at 1.5 or 2 degrees warmer. And we can hit both of those with existing technologies and practices we already have with nothing new at all, 
although we'd like to have some new things too, that'd be great. And we'd make a lot of money in the process for the planet and create lots and lots of jobs, have lots of health benefits, and make the planet a much better place all at the same time. In case anyone is listening to those temperatures, one and a half degrees and two degrees, and is is thinking, I live in Sydney and day-to-day temperature fluctuates more than that. How is that such a, a, a bad thing? Can you explain how a change in the average temperature around the world, that's small, the consequences that could potentially be? Well, one is to think about your own body. I mean, the average body temperature is supposed to be about 37 degrees Celsius or something. If you had a two-degree fever forever for the rest of your life, you're not well. Something is really, really wrong, and your body's systems will start shutting down. Even for a couple of days, you're very, very ill if that happens. So that's kind of one way to think about it. Another way to think about it is that this is talking about the average temperature of the entire planet, places that are in winter and summer, day, night, with different weather patterns, all averaged together over the long term. So this isn't just day-to-day weather. It's like the long-term kind of thermostat of the planet. Uh, It has never been this high for three to five million years. It's unlike anything we've seen in recent geologic history. In fact, going three to four degrees colder would be the last ice age. So, you know, that's how big a difference a few degrees temperature for the planet can be the difference between an ice age where, where I live. I live in um, Minneapolis in the United States. We were, where I'm sitting right now, there would be about a kilometer of ice over my head if the planet were two to three degrees colder. If it's two to three degrees warmer, we might have an equivalent change to the planet uh, in the other direction. And we don't even know what that would look like. It sure as heck wouldn't be very friendly to our current society that's built on the climate that we used to have, where our cities are, where our seawalls are, where we grow our food, where we get our water, how our planet just works, will be fundamentally different even with two, even, you know, two degrees warmer, let alone three, four, or five degrees warmer, which is where we'd be headed if we don't start to address climate change. Okay, so thankfully, though, we do have this science and we do have these solutions. You mentioned before that part of Drawdown is communicating the solutions and the science to governments and individuals, and you made it accessible to individuals, which you noted. How much of these solutions can be achieved through individual action versus government action? Is that something that you've looked at? They're very synergistic. One of the things that's very important to know is that there's no one solution to climate change. In Jordan, we talk about solutions, which are physical things that affect the air. So like replacing a coal plant with uh, solar panels is a solution. Reducing deforestation, carbon into the atmosphere, that's a solution. These are like things that change the chemistry of the air. We call those solutions, physical things. But then to make solutions actually scale and get bigger, we talk about levers. You have solutions and levers. And levers are the things that the society does to make solutions more, uh, to get bigger and to happen more quickly. So those include policy change, like, you know, governments setting different goals and incentivizing and disincentivizing different things by changing the rules. You know, what's in the law? What are your tax codes? What are, you know, uh, subsidies government makes? You know, what are, what are things that the government might do deliberately in terms of policy? At local, state, international, national levels, all the different levels of governance. So that's a really big area. Uh, individual behavior is also important, too, at the kind of bottom of the spectrum. we got really big levers like government policy all the way to you and me. Because at the end of the day, a lot of the things that affect climate change are still up to individual discretion, like our uh, dietary choices, food waste, 
where we choose to invest our money, where we shop, what we buy, how we buy it, when we recycle something, the kind of homes we aspire to buy and how we run them. All those things are also influenced by our individual decision-making. And then there's a lot of stuff in between, like um, how businesses are behaving. That's really important. If they only care about short-term profits, they're unlikely to do things that help with climate change and down the road. We also need technology investments in things that really matter. We also need uh, capital to move trillions of dollars, need to come out of things like coal and industrial agriculture, for example, and into things like renewables, regenerative agriculture, for example, or um, better diets, other things that people care about. We also need to move labor. You know, unfortunately, it means displacing labor. There are people who mine coal for a living right now or ranch cattle for a living right now who might need to find other lines of work. That's going to be very difficult. But those are the kinds of changes we need. And those, those are the levers we talk about, kind of uh, policy, capital, labor, technology, business behavior, and individual behavior. Those are kind of the levers we get to pull to make these solutions all get bigger. I think about a really big chessboard. I don't know if you have this show called The Queen's Gambit. I don't know if you see yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great show. <laughs> um, so I think about like seeing the whole board they talk about in chess. Like, okay, um, if you want to win the climate chess game, you've got to look at the whole board, not just the solar panel squares. You look at the entire board. And you've got to look at all the pieces. So it's kind of like, a, you know, in one dimension of the board, you have all the solutions. And on the other, you have all the levers to make them bigger. Now play that chess game. What's your opening move? How do you get to checkmate? And it's going to take time, but you get to have a lot of different pieces moving together. Mm, I love that. Now, it's a weird metaphor. I don't know if it works very well, but it's the one that's stuck in my head lately. <laughs> <laughs> You, you look at the solutions and sometimes you wonder why governments aren't moving faster. But this is a highly complex conversation and, and these solutions are complex. For example, I'm thinking here now what you just said then in terms of the, the ranches and this, this is people's livelihoods. So there needs to be a pathway to ensuring that these people are not out of work and without income and I imagine that transition is not something that just happens overnight. Well, absolutely. You know, and nobody should pretend this is all going to be pleasant for everyone. But at the end of the day, addressing climate change avoids some of the biggest societal and environmental disasters and economic disasters we could even imagine. So we know that if we don't address climate change, we're heading towards a world that is out of control, where disasters, natural disasters and so on would be just omnipresent where financial calamity, I mean, it'll make the COVID epidemic look like a cakewalk by comparison, is the world we'd be heading to if we do nothing. And we can't stand that. We, we just cannot have that. So we have to turn course. And yes, that means some industries um, that are maybe disproportionately polluting to climate change need to change. And um, I think it's only fair that we help at least the the kind of working class people in those industries, not the not the shareholders and the CEOs, they're going to be fine. But the coal miners and ranchers and farmers and others who may have to change what they're doing or how they're doing it uh, and maybe, you know, change to something better, hopefully better for them too. And uh, But we have to think as society as a whole and we don't, you know, subsidize um, wagon wheel makers and buggy whip makers in the past. Sometimes society has to move on to the next kind of way of doing things. And that, and that is hard. We should recognize that and not be glib about it, uh, but also not let it slow us down because, you know, we're talking about seven and a half billion people have to live on this planet. We can't be held hostage by just the fossil fuel companies. 
If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Thinking back to that chess metaphor and, and the first moves, the first sort of big moves that you'd like to see governments make, are governments making any of these large moves with legislation? Are there any countries that are sort of leading the way and showing other countries what can be done? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I don't. I think it's a mistake to look to national governments as the leaders on climate solutions. They're not usually. Um, it's might be cities, uh, might be business, might be other community um, organizations that are really leading, and together they have an effect nationally. But you know, a lot of the innovation is happening kind of locally and then scaling up to a, um, to the national scale in different countries. But it, what's fascinating is there's over forty countries in the world that have already peaked their emissions and are heading down. Now we have to get them to zero. That's going to be the hard part. But right now, the uh, leading country in the world on reducing their emissions is the UK. Uh, the UK actually peaked their emissions back in the 1980s, and they're now 40% below that peak, even though the UK economy and, and population have both grown considerably. 
Um, well, we'll see with Brexit what happens. Um, in the United States, where I live, um, we peaked our emissions in 2007. Uh, they are already, before COVID, um, about 17% below that already, even though the economy of the U.S. had grown during that time a lot. And this last year, um, it went down another 10%, probably, but that's fairly temporary, I think, due to the pandemic. The question is, what will happen after the pandemic? Will it boost back up again? Or does it, does it become a kind of a phase change where the economy that comes back after recession will have built-in incentives to be more efficient, to have investments in better technology? Do we finally get rid of coal? Do we finally get into efficiency? Do we finally get into EVs? Fortunately, after the big recession in 2008, and now this one in 2021, uh, we have leadership in America, at least, that is very pro-climate solutions, uh, with President Obama just taking the helm, and now President Biden. Uh, I think we're very fortunate as we're rebuilding these economies here um, that we have um, some of the most aggressive climate policy the U.S. has ever seen. This happened in the last month. So there's some good news there. Um, Nordic countries, a lot of European countries are doing pretty well. I think Japan's doing well. China hit peak emissions last year, but how much of that was COVID versus what was already a gradual change, we don't know yet. Um, so there is some, you know, interesting early moves happening um, that are good, but not enough. We have a lot more to go. There are many, many things I think we could do in the near term. For example, the best opening moves right now would be around efficiency, Energy efficiency in the electricity sector, for sure. Buildings and transportation. Those three right there are huge opportunities for still big efficiency wins that could happen today. But then in food and agriculture, food waste is another huge area. About 30 to 40% of the world's food supply is never eaten at all. And in our analysis, consistently ranks near the top of climate solutions as one of the most effective things we can do. And I've never met anybody from the pro-food waste lobby. I don't know who that is. Um, I think we all could benefit by reducing food waste. We just don't seem to be investing in it or know quite where to begin, but there are places. Then we could focus on things like methane releases because methane does all of its warming in the first 10 to 20 years after it's emitted, where CO2 does a lot of the warming for centuries. So when we reduce methane emissions, it has a big effect right now that could buy us a little bit more time to get rid of other emissions that have a longer-term effect. So that would be in both in agriculture, but also especially in the natural gas industry. Huge opportunity, like fixing the leaks, fugitive emissions, flaring, things like this are really, really important, fracking. Uh, but two-thirds of the emissions of methane on the planet are from livestock and rice paddies, but mostly livestock. We can't ignore that. Anyway, so there are a lot of early wins we could have. Also, stopping deforestation, that would be another big win. Uh, deforestation is still about 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions, more than most countries. You know, be the third largest emitter in the world if it were a country is just deforestation. And a lot of that's happening in the tropics, and a lot of it is for beef, animal feed, and palm oil. So it's actually fairly targeted. If you look at Indonesia, Brazil, and a handful of other countries, and a few big commodities, you've got a big lever of action right there too. And what do you think about Elon Musk's uh, $100 million carbon capture competition? Is that, have you seen that? Yeah, uh, I sure have. The only viable paths to stopping climate change put most of the effort in stopping pollution before it gets in the atmosphere, not tricks to pull it out again later. And we love those tricks. We've been talking about them for years. Um, we call that, today we call it direct air capture 30 years ago, we used to call it clean coal. You know, it's not the way you solve climate change. 
30 years ago, we used, in agriculture, we called it no-till. Now we're calling it regenerative. Same problem. It's sort of, instead of stopping the emissions before they get in the atmosphere, we're letting them go into the atmosphere and then pretending we'll take them out again later. It's sort of borrowing you know, the future against the present from an emissions perspective. But there's no guarantee that those machines or agricultural practices will, one, work, two, that they'll ever be big enough, that they're permanent, and that they're verifiable, and that they're what they're called additional. That is, they're bigger than what would happen anyway. We may need machines like this. I'm not against that, but I, I am against it if it becomes a distraction or an excuse to continue polluting. If this is just another excuse to keep burning fossil fuels or keep eating too much meat or whatever, oh, but we'll, we'll offset those emissions with machines or soils or trees. I'm like, no, I love soils and trees. Let's go do all that we want. That's fantastic. But don't make that part of your climate solution. you got to shut down your damn emissions anyway. And then go plant the trees and the soils too. But don't let it be a credit against stopping emissions that we know how to stop today. With all that said, okay, I have a complicated set of thoughts about this. With all that said, I do not like the idea of carbon removal if it's a distraction, which I think it is. Um, I think it can be and has been a distraction. We called it clean coal for years. Now it's air capture, whatever, same idea, basically. Um, with that said, though, uh, $100 million of Elon Musk's money to throw at the problem, that's pocket change for him. Um, fine, great. Um, but I'd much rather we spend $100 million on, like, how do we address food waste? How do we stop deforestation finally? How do we really think about getting heat pumps to be cheaper? That, if you care about climate change, that's where you put your money, not on science fiction devices for 30 years from now. That probably won't even show up. But, but you know, it's his money. We probably could use those kinds of things down the road. But the immediate job of the next decade or two is reduce, reduce, reduce everything possible. Yeah, I take your point. There seems to be quite frequently distractions from what matters most in this conversation. <laughs> they seem to pop up a bit. Yeah, and they keep coming back. They're like zombies that never die in the movies. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, we, we've had this discussion before. Like in the 80s, we called it clean coal. Like, no, that's totally different. Like, no, it's not. It's like, we're going to offset, we're going to suck out the CO2 from a smokestack and bury it someplace. Okay, now we're going to make the job even harder by doing it in the open air which is, you know, millions of times harder. And we're going to make that economical and scalable. It doesn't exist. I mean, there are a few prototypes of these things, but the atmosphere has never noticed one of these machines and they've never worked. And um, during the Trump administration, the U.S. government spent $200 million in the last 18 months as giveaways to the oil and gas industry to create carbon capture devices. People kind of forget that Trump loves this kind of thing. That was the only climate policy they ever had was on carbon capture machines. Now Elon Musk is adding another hundred million in this. I'm like, is this really meant to solve climate change or to delay shutting down the inevitable? Kind of sounds too good to be true. Well, I mean, I would love to be proven wrong. I'd love to see machines like this come online 10 to 20 years from now. That'd be great. But if I'm right and they don't come along, well, let's put it, manage the risk. I say, let's assume these machines don't work and never will, so we have to cut emissions. And I'm wrong. Oh, it turns out that, hey, we solved climate change five years earlier because their machines came online. But if they're wrong, then we're screwed. <laughs> we're totally screwed if we just wait for the machines to save us or the trees or the soils to save us. And they're wrong, the planet is buggered. I mean, we have no way out if we rely on their solutions completely. So let's hedge your bets. And the solutions that you've spoken about and are in drawdown 
and you mentioned this before, they're not just affecting greenhouse gas emissions, they're improving the health of the planet in other ways. So even if that was the case and the, the carbon capturing devices were successful, if we are to implement these solutions, will benefit in ways beyond carbon anyway. Well, carbon sequestration that works with nature has a lot of benefits. Um, I love those because even if they're not really that great for climate, they tend to do good things anyway, like restoring forests, restoring soils, all that. I, you know, there's nothing to you know really complain about there. Just how big a carbon solution they are is still debatable. But machines that allow um, you to kind of remove CO2 out of the atmosphere in one place instead of turning off the pollution over here, I actually worry about that because we'll think about the inequities that still maintains. A lot of the like fossil fuel mining and combustion, you know, where we drill for this stuff and where we burn this stuff, is in disproportionately poor places with people of color who pay the price for this in terms of air quality, water pollution, and death. Um, there was a study just published yesterday from Harvard University that shows that about 8 million people a year die prematurely from the air quality problems of fossil fuel burning. And most of that stuff is happening in poorer communities and communities of color. But if we just say, oh, but don't worry about that, we're just going to suck out the CO2 someplace else. And yet we're still burning, you know, in mining natural gas and coal and oil. Uh, what did we just do there? You know, we, we just still, we didn't solve the bigger problem. It's like, we need to get rid of fossil fuels, period, because even if we could fix the climate damage to the planet, we didn't do anything to the environmental injustices they cause or local environmental issues they cause or air pollution that affects lungs and lives. Um, that didn't get changed at all. So again, that's another reason these things could become a real um, distraction from doing what's really necessary. I want to pivot a little bit to the practical side of things for individuals. You wrote a beautiful uh, blog and you had a quote in there, or I'm quoting you in there, that said, in short, personal actions won't be enough to stop our impact on the planet, but they can be helpful and we need all the help we can get. And then you go on to break down, which I thought was really nice, the personal actions that we can all make or look to make based on our personal circumstances where it makes sense for us in these three categories of food, water and energy. So I thought maybe we could sort of step our way through each of those and, and give everyone, myself included, some practical information to go away and think about in terms of how our everyday lives and how we navigate our life affects the health of the planet. So why don't we start with food? We've mentioned a few things, food waste and, and whatnot, but why don't we sort of drill down on what are, the, what are the biggest levers that we can pull as individuals when it comes to food and what we're eating? Sure. Um, before we dive into that, if you don't mind, though, I do want to emphasize this point because it, it's become a bit of a debate in the environmental community, and I just want to make sure your listeners kind of, um, um, kind of hear this, I think, is that you know, personal actions alone definitely will not solve the problem. But they are a signal. Uh, first of all, they send a material signal to the environment. Like even if it's a drop in the ocean, we added a drop to the ocean uh, from our personal actions. We need a lot of them, so that, that's small. But it also sends a market signal. When you don't spend money on fossil fuels or you don't give your money to bad agricultural practices, you took away their money and you put it someplace else. That's a powerful market signal. And it's a powerful political signal. It's a powerful social signal. I, I would say this is more important than voting. Um, but a lot of people, voting is important too. Your one individual vote may not seem like it matters, but we know that it does. Same thing with our individual actions at home. 
it's not the whole solution. We need everyone to vote, not just one person. Same thing with individual um, environmental solutions. Do what you can, um, but but please don't harm your uh, pocketbook or your family in the process. You know, and sometimes people in more privileged lives can do more, and that's unfair. So we have to be re- recognizing that. But individual actions do matter uh, a little bit. Um, but I think also because they send signals to politicians and markets, they matter more than you think. But anyway, getting back to food, a lot of the solutions to environmental issues, whether it's climate change or impact on biodiversity or in natural resources, can begin by not wasting so much. So whether it's energy being wasted or food being wasted or water being wasted, start with efficiency. So in the food area, um, like you were asking me about, uh, we usually begin with talking about like food waste, saying what, regardless of what you like to eat, uh, wasting it is kind of kind of awful, isn't it? Because it's money you spent on food, you spent time preparing it, it's sitting in your cupboard, your refrigerator, or whatever, and you didn't eat it. Um, that's wasteful. Um, and it turns out globally about 30 to 40% of the food on earth is not eaten and is wasted. In rich countries, it's often near the consumer in our homes and um, markets and uh, schools and offices. We can work to reduce that. In poor countries, unfortunately, a lot of it is closer to the farmer or maybe it never even got to the market because of broken supply chains. So we have to work on that too. So food waste is really important, especially food waste in uh, meat and dairy products because they tend to be so much more resource intensive. They take much more land, energy, water, and carbon to grow those things. We tend to think about food waste as like tomatoes and lettuce or whatever we throw away. I look at the meat and dairy products actually because they're way more important to the environment. But uh, think about all food waste, but especially you know fish, meat, uh, dairy, things like that. Uh, to the extent uh, you're not compromising food safety, um, then try to make sure we don't waste that. Smaller portions, uh, take it home and eat it for lunch. Share it with neighbors, share it with loved ones. Uh, canning, freezing, lots of things like that are very, very helpful. Um, the second is a little more controversial, but it's still, sorry, it's physics, it's true. Eating more plant-rich diets is automatically one of the best things we can do for the environment in most settings, not everywhere. Uh, there are parts of the world where, um, you know, kind of grazing animals, pastoral systems, things like this are the only kind of food available to some very, uh, especially poor countries, people living right on the edge. This might be the only thing that guarantees their food security. But for you living in Sydney or me living in the U.S. or something, like eating less meat and less dairy is a huge win for the environment. Even if we eventually grow a lot of the stuff regeneratively, right now the fact is we don't grow almost any of it regeneratively. Less than, much less than 1% of the world's food supply would be, could be called regenerative or organic. And um, so what we're eating is mostly commercial stuff. And the less we do of that, the better. Doesn't mean we have to give up eating meat and dairy, but uh, eating less and substituting plants could help a lot. And our doctors are telling us to do some of that, too. Personally, I'm not a vegan. Uh, I eat a little bit of meat, but very rarely beef. Um, But if I do, I try to have it be grass-fed and regenerative if I can find that. I'm not going to waste a lot of resources eating a bad hamburger. I'd rather, you know, have a plant-based burger. And then if I really want beef, I'll have a really nice steak once in a while. Um, that tastes really, really good. I think you're the first person I've heard, not the first, but one of that frames that in a way that I think reflects the science in that eating more plants should be part of the message and perhaps the the largest part of that conversation as opposed to just shifting the type of meat. My worry about the regenerative agriculture message sometimes is that it doesn't come with the message that people need to eat more plant-rich diets and that it almost seems like 
it's a solution to just step away from, say, factory farmed meat to regenerative meat. But I wonder, and, and I'm wondering if you've thought about that, if we today were to click our fingers, get rid of factory farmed meat, and everyone consume the same amount of meat they do today from regenerative agriculture, what would that mean for the environment? Would that mean more deforestation, you know, more land requirements? Um, how would that look? Well, there are some interesting analyses by um, Matthew Hayek and a few other people I've seen recently. I wrote about a little bit of this on my blog. There's a little article called Beef Rules that is, um, where I try to dive into this a little bit. Um, the fact of the matter, in the United States, the analyses I've seen shows that if we got rid of feedlots, we'd only have about one-tenth as much beef production capacity in this country unless we started clear-cutting you know, clear forest everywhere. So there's, you know, there's just not enough grazing land uh, to grow regeneratively the beef supply of the U.S. Like the feedlots are growing a lot of it, and uh, grass is um, not able to keep up with that. I'm okay with that. I just think when I think about beef, I think like let's first of all waste none. <laughs> let's not waste any beef, regardless of how we grow it. That would be a good win for everybody. I argue we have to eat a lot less of it and be maybe pay maybe pay more for it and make it special, like it really is. And then grow it on grass um, and do it as regeneratively as possible. I love that idea, but I think you have to do all three. Um, I think the idea that Americans or Australians can eat a lot of beef all the time with its health implications, the doctors tell us it's not healthy to eat that much, and the resource constraints, the amount of land it needs, and so it's just not sustainable. Let's dial it down, and let's see if the regenerative folks can actually meet the demand. Right now, regenerative can't even meet 1% of the world's food supply. How are they going to suddenly do 100% overnight in a way that's unproven? It'd be a lot easier if we made it down to like 10%. Say, so how about you have a lot less meat? And, um, and nobody's going to flip a switch and make the world vegan. These, are, these arguments about like, is vegan better or regenerative better are kind of silly because there's no, there's no autocrat telling the world, you shall all eat lentils from now on. <laughs> We're going to have meat. So I would love to say, well, why don't we make it a little less, waste less, and help the regenerative and organic folks do a better job of meeting that demand. It's kind of win-win. So I'd like to see more innovation in eating more plants, making plants tastier, maybe maybe even plant-based substitutes wherever we can. And then for people to still choose to eat some meat, okay, great, whatever. Um, not you know, We'll debate that. But if we do do that, let's grow it in the most humane and environmentally sustainable way we can, uh, which I think the regenerative folks have a good kind of line on some of that. But I don't think there's any one absolute solution here. Uh, we're going to have to kind of work together where, you know, vegans and plant-based meat folks and regenerative ranchers and all the rest are actually on the same team. I'm really tired of them fighting with each other when we're actually trying to accomplish similar goals of, like, how do we live more sustainably on this planet um, and and also realize we're not going to convince everybody else to live exactly the way we want them to. So how do we get along? <laughs> you know? No, I think, I think that's a fair position. I think how you've summarized it there is in alignment with how I see it. The the only thing I don't agree with is when the regenerative ag message is appearing to be a huge solution by itself and in many ways, kind of without saying it, wanting people to double down on their meat consumption because it's, it's better for the planet. I feel like that's another distraction like we were talking about before from, from the lever that perhaps is more important, which is you know eating some more calories from plants in your diet. Yeah. Unfortunately, there have been some claims made by um, a couple of organizations that are not science-based at all um, that claim that regenerative ranching alone 
the regenerative um, agriculture can include plant growing plants too, by the way. Regenerative cropping, you know, like growing vegetables and fruits regeneratively is a really good idea. Um, but yeah, this regenerative ranching community, there have been a few outspoken organizations that have, I think, very, very sadly uh, cherry-picked a handful of numbers and extrapolated them to the entire world and then claimed, we can absorb all the greenhouse gases on our ranches. That is utter nonsense. Anybody who's actually really looked at soil science knows that that's not true. Uh, Rattan Lal, who just won the World soil Prize, world Food Prize, I should say, is an eminent soil scientist in the space. He's saying at maximum, maybe 5 to 10% of our emissions could ever be absorbed in soils. That's very similar to the numbers we've come up with and others have come up with. Um, it is part of a climate solution, but along with many other parts, um, it is, you know, this, that's not a silver bullet. And I, I agree. Um, but, I, but I like regenerative farming. I think it's a great idea. I'd like to see more of it. It has a lot of benefits. But when you have a couple of irresponsible uh, individuals um, and organizations making these bold claims that are not backed up by the science is really dangerous because it, it leads to false complacency and a distraction from the other work we need to do. But with all that said, I'd love to see um, the world grow food regeneratively because I think it has good benefits for the soil and watersheds and animals and biodiversity. Just don't think of it as the single solution to climate change. It's not. It might not even be a solution at all. It might just be less harmful um, because there's still methane coming from cattle. But I'll take less harmful. Less harmful is a good step. So um, when the regenerative community kind of boldly puffs their chest that we are the big climate solution in the room, no, 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 no. You're part of it at most. Um, most of it is probably mitigating the harm that ranching used to do. Um, and that's good. That's all good. It takes the positives here, but it doesn't have to be uh, the big, bold solution that some are claiming. Question on, on something that's very similar. Well, similar in that it's providing animal protein and, and could potentially be a solution. And, and something that I've read about and come across is cellular agriculture. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the viability of, of that as a solution. You know, I can see just top, top level, it seems to be a solution that could potentially offer enormous benefits. But then I see the other side of the conversation and people suggesting that perhaps these systems could be very energy intensive. Is this a solution that you've looked at or is it just far too early in terms of the industry to sort of to, to speculate as to you know, how big of a solution it could be? I don't get it because um, these are, I mean, the idea is to use animal cells uh, to kind of, rather than a living animal, to grow meat in an artificial condition. You know, okay, that sounds lovely, but guess what? Animal cells still need to eat something. And what are they feeding them? So in the same thermodynamics applies. You need about 20 units of energy from plant-based materials to make about one unit of energy of animal protein. Uh, that's whether the animal's alive or in a Petri dish. doesn't really matter. So I'm asking myself, like, what are they feeding these vats of animal cells? You know, what, what are they growing the cellular agriculture in? Wouldn't it be a lot easier just to use the damn plant and not have to have 19 more units of plants to just make one more animal cell, especially if you can make the, the plants taste like an animal? And that's where the plant-based burgers and things like this are doing a pretty good job. So I, I just see it as a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. Just like, you know, well, what if you're trying to make a steak, then eat the damn steak, grow it better. If you're trying to make cheap, meaty-like substance for hamburgers and things, go with plants that taste pretty close to what the burger would have been or just skip it all together. Uh, so I, I don't find that a very interesting solution. It's kind of like um, insects as food. It's like, yeah, but those are still little animals. And uh, an insect is about the same efficiency as a chicken in converting plants into animal protein. 
you haven't changed anything. There's just fundamental biology happening here. Would that inefficiency perhaps be reduced given that you're not growing parts of the animal that are not consumed? Oh, uh, well, that's yet to be demonstrated. We'll see. Um, you know, because there's also the other inefficiencies of how do you synthesize what an animal metabolized? Can you do it more efficient than the animal would have done in the first place? And what is the feedstock? Is it just pure sugar solution that we're injecting? And then where did the sugar come from? Um, you know, these, these cells have to eat something. They don't just grow by magic. Um, you know, the cellular agriculture isn't alchemy. It isn't growing meat out of the air. Where did the carbon come from? Where did the amino acids come from? Where did the protein come from? It came from plant feedstocks. What feedstocks? How did you get them into the basic building blocks? Those cells can then turn into animal proteins and things like that. How efficient is that process? We tend to skip over kind of, you know, the basic physics of this. Like, where did the atoms and energy for this stuff come from? And is it any more efficient than life is? And the answer is usually no. Uh, some people, like, write to me and talk about how eating insects is more, you know, suddenly, suddenly that's the way to solve the food crisis. I'm like, insects are animals, too. Um, they have to convert plants to animals. Now, they can eat other things that other animals don't like to eat. But it's, it's not magic. It's just biology, and we kind of know how efficient these things are. Whether it's a cell, an insect, or a cow, there's thermodynamics involved in all of that. Yeah, I guess it'll be interesting in the next handful of years. I'm sure some of these companies are going to do life cycle analyses and and hopefully peer-reviewed stuff so that, you know, they... they climb. Well, I'm more excited about the things that are based on actual plants. I mean, the closer our food is to the sun, the better. Because, uh, you know, the energy for everything on this planet comes from the sun. Our food, through photosynthesis, through plants, to animals, to us. The energy that drives the atmosphere, the energy that drives, you know, everything comes from the sun. If you can, st if you can cut out the middleman and go to the plants... The node, it would be even better. You know, you really want to get the tech guys thinking really big is figure out how to inject like chloroplast into our skin so we don't even have to eat. If humans could just photosynthesize ourselves and just stand in the sun and go, I'm eating, you know, out in the sun, that'd be great, but we don't know how to do that. So the closest thing we can do to be solar powered is to eat the plant that knows how to do that itself. And so I think it's just like, why are we inventing solutions to problems we never had in the first place? Um, you know, we, we go to great lengths to invent crazy technologies to do something that, you know, we knew how to do in the 1800s, which is like, how about we grow like lentils and beans and things like that that are, have, you know, very good um, dietary uh, provisions, maybe cut back on the meat stuff instead of inventing crazy technologies to substitute for that. I'm like, why are we making this so hard? <laughs> you know? I, I take your point on that, but I guess back to your point earlier, and, and, and I'm, I'm seeing the other side of the conversation here. But again, this is all dependent on a life cycle analysis, which I don't believe we have strong data on. But the other side of the conversation on the cellular agriculture fence is that you're not going to convince the world to eat lentils. And they want to put a solution that is more environmentally friendly than, say, factory farmed meat to the consumer that tastes the same and is the same price. That's that's the kind of rationale on that side of the, the fence. I guess it, it's yet to be seen if, if that can be done. No, I agree with that sentiment, but that's where I think like the plant-based meat alternatives type things, whether, you know, it's Impossible Burgers and Beyond Meat or whatever, that makes just a lot more sense to me because it's not trying to invent an animal cell to taste like an animal cell. It's getting a plant to taste like animals and just skip a whole, a whole step of biology and tricking, you know, our, our taste buds into thinking this thing tastes like a hamburger or whatever. And guess what? They do. They, they're amazingly good. 
Now, I know some people are still questioning, you know, how do they make those burgers and whether they, you know, um, how healthy those individual ingredients are. Well, good, let's keep revising them. Maybe there are better ways to make a thing that tastes like a burger that's made out of plants. Um, uh, you know, the current formula maybe isn't the best one. I don't know. I'm not a nutritional scientist, but, um, you know, environmentally, it's certainly better. One of the concerns that I hear quite often is that the Beyond and the Impossible and similar products like that, people that are sort of um, arguing against plant-based meats is that they are relying on uh, monocrop like pea and, and soy. What do you think about that? Is that is that a, a valid concern? No, I don't think so because um, so is the entire meat industry. Um, you know, you look at what, you know, the, the soybeans grown in the Amazon are for one thing, animal feed. Uh, across the United States, um, we have 100 million acres of corn, uh, about 80 million acres of soybeans. Other than ethanol, what is that for? That is animal feed. So most of the world's giant monocultural crops are animal feed. Uh, so we're using like 1% of them to make some, you know, plant-based stuff or tofu or whatever too. Like that's nothing compared to the monocultures that are already in the animal agricultural world. And don't forget, you know, 76% of all the farmland on earth that's in agriculture is used to do one thing, grow meat or the plants that animals eat. Uh, so that is a just crazy kind of claim that, oh, because they use soya products in an Impossible Burger, therefore they're contributing to monocultural big ag. Like, compared to a conventional hamburger? Are you kidding me? That's not even close. Um, now, and what I like about the Impossible and Beyond thing is, like, they could make it out of other proteins. And I don't see vast monocultures of peas on this planet from space. You know, there's not hundreds of millions of acres of peas being grown or, you know, chickpeas or something like that. So I think we can kind of dial down the rhetoric there. That's just kind of nonsense. Compare, I mean, the, the conventional beef industry is such a gigantic, big ag, monocultural footprint of, you know, GMO soybeans, GMO corn, being fed to feedlot beef. That's what you're comparing it to. That's the average hamburger. Compare that to an Impossible Burger. I don't think that's fair. Full disclosure, by the way, Impossible Burgers is one of our partners, so I should disclose that. They are working with Project Drawdown. Uh, so we, we, we're not endorsing them or anything, but I should disclose that. Um, and um, you know, and I, I have concerns about what anything we eat is made out of, of course. We should do better and have more conversations like this. So I'm not proposing one's better than the other. But let's be honest, uh, regular hamburgers have a much bigger problem in that space than anybody else does. Um, and Beyond Meat or anything else, they're all in the same kind of... And, and we're in the early days of that technology, too. Uh, we get to see what happens, and hopefully we can find lots of ways to make these kinds of plant-based uh, things, as well as eating meat, uh, traditional meat or maybe cellular meat, better. I'm, I'm all for better, whatever it is. And so if we can farm you know, uh, traditional meat better, great, let's do that. I think we're going to have to farm it better and eat less of it. And if we can meet up some of the demand for that with plant-based alternatives, that's great. And if we can do cellular farming, I'm a little skeptical of it for the reasons I said, but maybe it'll prove me wrong. And in 10 years, we'll have lots of those things. Let's see. Okay, great. That's, that's food. I'm conscious of your time here. Why don't we finish with the other two sort of themes that you speak about when you talk about individual changes being water and, and energy and the things that we can think about here with regards to lowering our environmental footprint? Well, in energy, it's kind of the big ones. Those are going to be ones that really affect climate, especially. Uh, water, maybe less so, but water is important for other reasons, of course, um, especially in places with water um, resource condition issues. But on energy, um, a lot of what we can think about is kind of in three buckets. You might think about our use of electricity, um, use of heating fuels, especially in cold parts of the world, 
and then transportation. When you start with electricity, actually with all three of these, you can start by asking about how do I use what I've got now very efficiently. So um, even if you can't change the power plant that feeds your home electricity, maybe it's burning gas or coal still, um, you can't flip that to solar immediately, but you can make your house use less electricity by thinking about appliances. That could be like air conditioning is very, very important. Refrigerators are very important. Lighting can be important over time. And so as those kinds of things begin to wear out and need to be replaced, um, replace them with the most energy efficient devices you can. A really efficient air conditioner is a big deal. A, a new efficient refrigerator is very important. Uh, replacing light bulbs to LEDs and things like this will gradually be very, very important. So uh, those are all incredibly useful things to do is energy efficiency. Then, depending on how um, where you live, maybe you can then tie into um, electrical services that are provided by solar, wind, and other things that are not greenhouse gas emitting. That would be great. Um, you sometimes have some choices. Sometimes you don't, depending where you live. Uh, in many parts of the world, you can pay a little bit extra to maybe get the part of the grid you're consuming to be fed by renewables or like that. Uh, or you can go all the way if you have a lot of money and you can put um, a solar station right on your own roof uh, if you live in the right kind of place. And maybe there are tax incentives to do that affordably. And solar panels on your roof are uh, getting cheaper and cheaper. But it's still cheaper for the utility to do it for you than it is for you to do it on your own roof because they just have the economy of scale. They can do it in vast areas uh, with much less labor costs than you putting it up on every single individual home in Australia, let's say. But we should do all of that. So energy efficiency and switching to renewables, those are the big wins there. Uh, heating and uh, cooling are very important, but especially in parts of the world and cold places where you're burning natural gas or fuel oil or something in your home to heat it. Um, I live in a, a very cold part of the United States where we have about a four or five month heating season and we burn natural gas in boilers in our home. And right now it's about, it's about minus 20 Celsius in my house right now. So it's a uh, very, very cold. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's a little hard for Australians to imagine that. So yes, um, unfortunately I'm releasing CO2 out of my home right now to keep it from freezing. Um, but that can also be, first, energy efficiency. Let's insulate the walls, the attics, the basement. Let's make sure the windows are tight and airproof, weather stripping. All of that is about half of the problem. And then eventually, um, I'm renting this house, but when I eventually buy a place again, I want to switch out the gas boiler with an electric heat pump, which can provide heating and cooling services to the house and be powered by renewable electricity. That would be great. But it's Costs a few thousand dollars. It's kind of expensive, so I'm not going to do it every year. And I might have to do it when I can afford to and that kind of thing. That, that might be useful, but it's not for everyone. Uh, but energy efficiency pays for itself in a year or two, like a programmable thermostat, better weather stripping, uh, tightening doors and windows, insulating attics, things like that are very important. And then um, hot water, too, like making sure your hot water heater is efficient and you're not wasting hot water. And then maybe uh, a heat pump for that as well down the road so it can be powered by renewable electricity later, but maybe not right away. Uh, and then finally, uh, transport. Um, a lot of us are not quite ready to buy an electric car, but maybe that's coming soon. Maybe it's just a few years away, but maybe you have to get something now. And if you don't have um, all the charging stations or the right tax incentives or something, well, at least buy the most efficient vehicle you can, even if it's still powered by petrol um, and gasoline. Make sure you're getting something efficient, not some giant truck you don't really need. Uh, so that's just kind of common sense. And um, 
But then eventually the you know hybrid vehicles, plug-in hybrids to all the way electric vehicles are definitely in the future. And um, you know within a couple of years, Bloomberg estimates that electric cars will be cheaper not only to operate, which they already are, they'll be cheaper to buy up front because there's just less parts uh, inside. They're cheaper to build and cheaper to sell and cheaper to operate. So I expect the tipping point in the vehicle market will happen in this decade where there'll be more electric cars sold than combustion vehicles pretty soon. Question on electric vehicles. And this is this is not a topic that I have done extensive research on, very much a novice when it comes to electric vehicles. Uh, something I'm, I'm keen to learn more about because, as you say, I, I feel like it is coming and I feel like it's a, a natural progression for me. I drive a petrol car at the moment and... I want to learn more about it so I can make a, an informed decision. But often I, I come across a, a counter-argument, again, not one that I've researched, that the, the resources required to make an electric vehicle, particularly the, the battery, are, are worse for the environment. Is that an accurate representation? No, not really. I mean, all cars have batteries, first of all. Uh, the electric cars merely have larger batteries. And battery technology is not perfect. Um, that uh, we do still have um, some pretty nasty materials being used in the mining and construction of building batteries. That's true. Um, But compared to uncontrolled pollution that goes in the atmosphere and affects everywhere in in a way that we can never clean up, I'd much rather have my pollution on the ground in one location than in the sky forever, changing the entire planet. So I, I don't think that's a very viable argument. The cleaning up battery technology is a far easier problem than fixing climate change. Uh, also, the the carbon benefits, like there's some some people argue, oh, the, it took extra energy to make the battery. Therefore, um, the carbon benefits of driving electric cars never manifest because of all the energy it took to build the car. That's not true either. After a few thousand kilometers of driving an electric car compared to a petrol car, you've more than paid for the difference of the cost of building the car. So uh, they are very, very, very clearly a win for the environment. Uh, yet, we still do have to be mindful of um how we obtain, construct, and recycle battery components like everything else in a car. But how, do, how is that different than a petroleum-based car, which already has a battery and all sorts of, you know, has Bluetooth and cell phone things in it that all have the same problem? So um, we just have to solve that problem. And, um, but with an electric car, we have to solve that problem, but we get the benefit of addressing climate change, which petroleum cars will never do. Also, petroleum cars have to have things like catalytic converters that use you know, heavy metals, like, you know, um, uh, very expensive ones and catalytic converters to clean up their air pollution. In fact, in the U.S. lately, it's been a new wave of crime where people are going underneath your car and ripping out the catalytic converter and selling them because they have uh, precious metals in them and that can go, you know, have pretty good street value. Uh, That's been happening in my neighborhood lately, which is really strange. Electric cars don't have catalytic converters because they don't emit anything. Um, So that's another kind of environmental win. So there's pluses and minuses to all technologies. Nothing is going to be a free lunch. But uh, overall, the electric car is a far, far better environmental proposition, if you're being honest about it. But again, you know, things we have to think about. How do we get better at batteries? That's for sure. But this isn't going to make or break us on the planet. And I guess the other question there is if you have an existing petrol car, is it beneficial to just keep driving that until that one day no longer drives and then swap to an electric car? Or is it more beneficial to jump out whenever you can? From a purely life cycle point of view, most of the numbers I've seen are showing that the new cars are getting, from a climate point of view, uh, would kind of pay for themselves of building the new car after about, you know, let's say 10,000 kilometers. 
So like in a year, it would already kind of pay for itself and everything after that is a win. Um, but, the, but you know, there are other considerations of like your money. Uh, if you, the car you have is paid for and you're just driving it for a while and it's reliable, hell, do that. Um, you know, we can't, environmental decision-making isn't the only thing we're basing our decisions on, of course. Um, but I think it's just when it's time to get the next vehicle, um, please consider something much more fuel efficient or electric. Uh, but a lot of the electric might be up to the capacity of recharging stations in your area and what you like and what you can afford. I mean, you know, it's going to take a little time, uh, but the bit more we can do in that, the better. But nobody should be feeling too guilty about it. This is still something where individual actions can help, but we don't have all the options open to us yet. They're only going to get better and do what you can. I agree. And to wrap it up, water. What what can we do to, to save water? Why is this important? Well, most of the water we touch in our lives is actually in the form of food. So that's something that's very, very important. So again, that's where eating less meat and less dairy is the biggest thing we can do for water always is our diets. And uh, kind of more plant-rich diets helps with carbon, it helps with land, it helps with biodiversity, and it helps a lot with water. So that's the biggest thing we can do. The second biggest, though, is probably our own little gardens outside, uh, lawns and landscaping, things we might irrigate, depending on what kind of climate you live in. If you're watering grass and flowers and things of this, make sure, you know, maybe using drip irrigation, building up the soil, things that are really, really crucial. And then you go indoors, and that's going to be even less, but it'll be things like low-flow toilets and um, shower fixtures, things like this, low-flow um, you know, very energy-efficient washing machines, dishwashers, things like this are also water-efficient usually. So they use less water and less energy because the wa- and with hot water, you get the double win of using less water, but also less energy to make it hot. So um, those are all important things. But, you know, uh, food is the first biggest thing we do. Second would be our landscaping. And third would be kind of you know, like toilets to dishwashers, washing machines, things like this. And um, what we can kind of uh, be more mindful of In terms of where our water comes from, that's something as individuals we have very little say over, but it's always, always, always more efficient and cheaper and better to conserve water than to talk about desalination plants or something like that, which are going to be very expensive and very, very uh, fraught with uh, delays and technology problems. So let's conserve water and be smarter about it and waste less of it is always the best thing to do, whether it's food, water, or energy. Waste less, use it better. Beautifully put. To close this one out, Jonathan, on an individual level, you've taken us through a lot of things that we can do. I mentioned before, at times, the conversation about climate change can seem a little overwhelming and and anxiety generating and lead to a, a sort of defeatist kind of mindset where we can feed ourselves this narrative that what we do as individuals matters little. As a bit of a parting note, how can we stay positive and optimistic and and how do you encourage people to think about these solutions in their own life? I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's, and it's okay to feel sad about this stuff and to be anxious about this stuff. It's sad and anxiety-provoking sometimes. Um, there's, that's truth. Um, we shouldn't be denying how we feel. But I guess I would encourage us to sit with those feelings for a while and process them and move through them. And whenever you're ready, get to the point of now action or what you can do about it. And yes, individual actions alone without business and government changing is not going to help a lot. But if we combine our individual actions with political action, with our voting with our votes, voting with our dollars, voting with our actions at home, all at the same time, that's how societies can change and how you can participate in that. And the number one thing uh, a lot of people, like Catherine Hayhoe says this a lot, say we should do about climate change is talk about it more. 
to remind people like we do have solutions and these solutions actually could be very good for us in many ways. This doesn't have to be scary. It could in fact be one of the biggest opportunities in history to make our lives better at the same time as addressing a huge disaster in the future. And uh, so why don't we seize this as an opportunity to create new jobs, better communities, more healthy ways of living and avoid planetary disaster. Um, I think it's actually a wonderful opportunity for us to reimagine the world and make it better. And uh, it, But it requires that we get up in the morning and seize that opportunity and uh, make it reality. And we all have different roles we can play in making that happen. And um, our individual actions can be part of that, just like voting, just like where we spend our money. What we do at home can help uh, influence the world around us too. But voting and talking and activism and all of that is even more important because uh, you can live the most virtuous life in the world at home, but you've never talked to anybody about it, it's not going to do much good. But if we try these things out at home and we talk about them and influence the world around us a bit more and keep our votes and our dollars aligned with those values and those actions, then we start to have a big impact. And that's gets to be pretty interesting. Well said. Let's, uh, let's do this again sometime soon. That was fantastic. Uh, if, if people would like to connect with you online and, and learn more about what you're doing and, and what Project Drawdown is all about, where can they find you? Well, Project Drawdown is easy to find online at drawdown.org. And then on social media, um, we're at Project Drawdown on places like Twitter and Facebook and uh, Instagram and the rest. I'm easy to find online as well. Um, I usually go on the handle of a global eco guy on things like Twitter and Facebook and the rest, but uh, Twitter is probably the best place to find me. And then I also have a, a blog by that title as well, globalecoguy.org, and um, you can find me there on Medium as well as on Twitter. So I um, hope to see folks there and have ongoing conversations. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me. There we go, friends. A bit to unpack there. Lots of practical tips. As you heard, when it comes to our diet, at the core of Jonathan's message is the need for people to shift to plant-rich diets. This is one of Project Drawdown's top five solutions. And while Jonathan doesn't necessarily see a vegan world, he did emphasize the need to really cut down on red meat and dairy and spoke to the exaggerated claims that often come from the regenerative agriculture industry. Where I see things slightly differently is that the studies on dietary patterns clearly show a plant-exclusive diet has significantly less greenhouse gas emissions attached to it than a diet that contains animal products. So my view is if you are in a position, a position of privilege, why not aim for a diet that's as plant-exclusive as possible for you? Ultimately, this is going to be incredible for your health and will help offset emissions from people around the world who will inevitably not be in a position or will not be willing to change their diet. One thing both Jonathan and I agree on is it really does depend on your personal circumstances. So I agree it's not as easy as just telling everyone to completely eliminate animal products from their diet and thinking that's going to happen you know your personal circumstances, so you'll find what works for you. But I think it is important to emphasize that the less animal products in one's diet, the lower their environmental footprint is. And on the note of cellular agriculture, I guess I am 
a little more optimistic than Jonathan in some respects. But to be fair, we do need more data. Hopefully we see some really good life cycle analysis data in the coming years that shows just how much resources are required to produce cellular meat and bioengineered dairy products, so dairy products made without the cow. I'm optimistic because this innovation from what I've read and from people that I've spoken about, for example, Bruce Friedrich, who was previously on the show, this innovation means we can produce a lot more calories from these foods using a lot less land, a lot less land. That, for me, seems to be the key benefit with this area of innovation, which means reallocating land currently used for agriculture to natural ecosystems. But some of this does remain to be seen. So it's something I will certainly continue to research. And as I just mentioned then, if you missed the previous episode I did with Bruce Friedrich from Good Food Institute, I definitely recommend you go back and listen to that. Finally, I have added a few of Jonathan's blogs that summarize much of what we spoke about today into the show notes. And of course, if you enjoyed today's episode, please do share it with two or three of your friends or family members who you think might also be interested in listening to it. And connect with Jonathan on social media. You can find him on Twitter at Global Eco Guy. And my handle is at plant underscore proof, both on Twitter and Instagram. I hope by now we are connected. Okay, that's all for today. Thanks for hanging out with me all the way to the end. I look forward to seeing you next episode. Until then, more plants, my friends, more plants.